Hey, good morning, men and men. Before I get going into the message this morning, I have to start with a big thank you. Thank you for the gift of your time and feedback. Last week, we sent you all out that survey. It had a bunch of questions on it, asking for your thoughts and your opinions regarding how and when we resume in-person gatherings here at the church. Guys, you responded in record numbers. Literally like an avalanche of responses came in almost as soon as we sent them out. And uh, while we're still pulling the data together, there's a couple of clear patterns that have emerged. First, you're holding this hour holy. You've obeyed the commands of the writer of the book of Hebrews. You have not forsaken meeting together. The percentage of you guys who are tracking with us online every Sunday, and, and I think this is so important, and doing it live at 9 or 10.30, it was overwhelming. And as your pastor, this is so encouraging, and for our community in terms of coming out of this stronger than we went into it, it's super exciting. Second, while the hows in terms of how the gatherings look and how they'll feel, the how responses, well, they were split up a bit. And some of the hows, of course, are going to get determined by the state and local authorities whom we have a biblical responsibility to honor, especially in this situation. The vast majority of you, though, responded to the when question with, we'd like to start meeting at some level or another soon. And so we have your feedback. We're waiting to get the specifics on the how mandates, and we hope to be back to you with the whens as soon as we can. But guys, thanks so much, and we value your opinion. It matters. Now, let's get back to opening up me again. This series we're in, we're trying to look beneath the hood of our hearts and and do the work uh, that the writers of the Scriptures repeatedly asked us to do, which is to stop and examine ourselves. Why? Well, because we want to, at least I want to, and I think you want to, change We've been given this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where our lives, literally as we know them, have been put on pause. And, and so the goal has been to not waste, as they say, a good crisis, but to instead use this for our common good and our personal good. Remember, this is not a series of talks about behavioral change. That, of course, is kind of the ends we'd expect to come from this series But this is not about telling you all the things you should stop doing or start doing. This is about something much deeper than that. What we're trying to get at are the patterns, the ruts, the filters, the experiences and wounds that we have, those things that have attached themselves kind of like a barnacle to our souls and which result in us in doing all of the things we do, the things we wish we wouldn't do the things that repeatedly trip us up, the things that hold us back or cause damage relationally, emotionally, financially, professionally. Remember, it was Jesus who taught us that the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these things defile them. These things are what separate us from God. These are the things that separate us one from another. For out of the heart, Jesus said, come evil thoughts, which move towards murder and adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. That's why we're working on our hearts. Now, if you were with us last week, you know last week we looked at one of the most insidious barnacles which needs to be scraped from our souls, and it's this barnacle of anger. I say it's insidious because of its subtlety. Many of us know our issues, 
Many of us can see them in ourselves. Many of us are willing to admit to those things, and that makes them easier to work on. See, anger, though, anger is different. Some of us might admittedly struggle with anxiety or envy or jealousy or greed, but almost none of us would say, oh, yeah, me, I, me, I have a huge anger problem. See, that's the problem. The issue, as we learned last week, is that most of us do have, to one extent or another, anger issues. And so, we talked about bad anger and good anger, when you should be angry and, and what it should be fueled by, and, and when you are angry, what it shouldn't be fueled by, and, and that was all in last week's talk. If you remember, I gave you some quarantine tools last week, some Q-tips to help you identify your own anger issues and to begin the process of healing, scraping. I have to tell you, though, I saved the number one anger healing agent for this week. In fact, I think it's the number one transformative Q-tip I can give you for the entire series. If you remember none of the tools I've given you so far, well, it stinks for me because a lot of work has gone into these talks, but that's okay. I'll get over it because there's always another Sunday. But if you can only remember one tool from the whole series, then remember this one. Ready? Here it is. Two words. Just as. Q-tip one for the day. Just as. Usually, I end the talk with the Q-tip. This week, I'm starting with it. Your Q-tip for the week is to remember two words. Just as. As. So, jump in with me. The Apostle Paul, an early first century Jewish religious leader, a, a member of what was called the Pharisees. If you know some of the stories of Jesus that are outlined in the four gospel accounts written by Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, you know most of the time Jesus was at pretty big odds with this group called the Pharisees. Most of his strongest words, his harshest condemnations, they weren't for sinners. They weren't for people that were far off from God. But they were for these Pharisees, these religious rulers who maintained their power, who maintained their standing by mandating strict adherence to religious laws that they often twisted and used to preserve their rule. And, and ultimately, those things kept people from God. You see, Paul, he was a self-described Pharisee of Pharisees, in some sense the worst of the worst. And it was Paul who was part of the martyring of the first followers of Jesus because he was desperately trying to stamp out the early movement of Jesus' followers, which eventually became his church. Some of you know the story. It's recorded in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is written by Luke. He was a first century physician who wrote the book that also bears his name. Paul had what had to have been a ridiculously dramatic experience with the risen Jesus. This is one of the reasons I believe the Scriptures to be true. What could have changed a man so dramatically? This experience, which happened to him as he traveled on the road to Damascus, so changed him, he goes on to be the church's greatest advocate, the church's greatest apologist, and the church's greatest evangelist. In fact, on his second missionary journey to spread the story of Jesus, he plants a church in a Greek port city named Ephesus. And the Bible has in it a letter in the New Testament that he writes sometime later back to that church. It's in that letter we find this reference. Paul starts, in reference to your former way of life, 
you lay aside the old self and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Guys, in other words, this is a fairly simple teaching. It's simple to read. It's not as easy to do. But Paul's saying, look, be changed, be transformed, become new, different, a, a better kind of human being, a different kind of person in Christ. And that's what we're trying to do together, right? That's why we're looking at our hearts. Well, in regards to anger, we saw this last week. It's right there in his letter to the Ephesians. Paul wrote, be angry. Talked about it last week. There are times to be. And yet, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil an opportunity. We talked about this last week, this concept of slow anger and righteous indignation and how imperative it is to deal with it. And if you don't, if you don't you're giving the devil what another translation of the Scriptures calls a foothold into your life. He goes on, though, and makes, if you've ever dealt with real deep and sustained hurt, what at face value seems like an unreasonable demand. Paul writes to them, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along, he says, with every form of malice. Get rid of, the Greek term there means to remove from yourself, to separate from yourself, almost like those clothes, to throw them off of you. And then he gives this inclusive list of, in a sense, anger terms. Get rid of, in your life, in your heart and soul, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. And then it's almost like Paul says, it's, it's like if I miss an association with anger, he goes, I'm just going to throw in this. Get rid of every form of malice. This is, this is what Paul says that hurt and offense that result in human anger result in bitterness, rage, brawling, and slander. Anger, which comes with the hurt, what does it result in? Bitterness, rage, brawling, and slander. We've seen a lot of that this week. We get bitter enough, right? I'm bitter. I want something bad to happen to you because of what you did to me. Bitterness means I am wishing ill on you now. I want you to get what you deserve. I hope you get caught. I hope you get busted. I hope you fail. I hope you fall on your face. What's funny is we used to hide those kind of feelings because we were ashamed of them. But today, you see people on your social media feeds say that they wish this all the time. Sometimes it's in the form of, uh, form of karma or payback. That's what bitterness is. Paul says you've got to get rid of that. Rage, uncontrollable anger, explosive anger, which just looks for something or someone, even if it's unrelated, to blow up on. How about brawling? I'm so hurt, so angry, I want to physically hurt you. Or in some way, physically get even. Uh, or how about slander, which I think is maybe more common, because maybe I can't get physically even. Maybe you're bigger than me or more powerful than me or you have some authority over me in some way, or, or maybe you feign yourself too sophisticated to resort to physical violence. So what I'm going to do is destroy your reputation. I'm going to trash you online with my posts. 
I'm going to screenshot that picture and put it up. I'm going to video that Snapchat I recorded of you, and then everyone will know. I don't know if this sounds familiar to me or familiar to you. It sounds really familiar to me. You know why? Because, guys, I've seen it flying around a lot in our little enclaves we call Chester and Mendham and Long Valley this week. Look, we may not loot stores or riot in the streets here in our town, but we sure know some other forms of malice. And unfortunately, we are not afraid to use them. And so here's what Paul says. He goes, stop. Get rid of it. That's the old man. Take it off which at first blush seems a bit Pollyannish, and at best, or maybe at best Pollyannish, at worst, ignorant. Get rid of it? What do you mean, Paul? It's natural. Are you kidding me? Do you know what he did to me? Do you know what she said about me? Do you know what they took from me? Do you understand what I've been subjected to? Do you know what's happened? What do you mean just put it off, just get rid of it? Nice religiosity, Paul, but you know what? At some level, you might need to get over yourself, dude, because you don't know me. You don't know my story. Who are you to tell me to let it go? And that makes a lot of sense until you realize who wrote the letter and where the letter's coming from. Paul would write to a church in, in the city of Corinth, and he would describe himself this way, his situation as such. He says, you know, I've been in prison I've been flogged, I've been exposed to death again and again, I've received 40 lashes, I've been beaten with rods, pelted with stones, three times shipwrecked, I spent a night in the open sea, and it turns out this letter he's writing to the church in Ephesus, he's writing it from the pit of a Roman jail, likely chained to his jailer. It's that Paul, which now maybe, maybe, for the people in Ephesus, and for the people in Chester, and the people in Randolph, and the people in Long Valley, it's that Paul who maybe now has a little street cred who says, no, no, I know. I know. I felt it too. Now I'm telling you, let it go. To which I think a lot of us would say, all right, great, Paul. Okay, so maybe you have some right to say something. I haven't been beaten with any rods, but I have had my dreams crushed. We promised to love each other for better or for worse. I, I gave up the best years of my life, my career. I stayed home with the kids. I, I didn't get a lot of the better, Paul. And now that he's just left me for his younger secretary, all I've gotten and all I can see coming for me is the worse. Maybe some of you would say, I get it, Paul. No one shipwrecked me, but they did shipwreck my career. They went over my head. They made up some stories. They told some lies. And you know what? I'm back in the cubicle I started in 10 years ago, and that guy is over in the corner office. No malice. No bitterness, Paul, really. I appreciate the sentiment, but you don't understand. I'm the victim here. It's my right to be angry. Of course I want him to fail. I can't wait to see it. He owes me. These are our stories. You know why I know? Because I, I do a lot of counseling. I talk with a lot of people. One of the running lines around the church office, because those of us in ministry know this to be true, um, you become quickly aware. We say it all the time. There's a lot of pain out there. 
And sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, for us, our hurt, our pain, it becomes like a trophy we show off. Our identity sometimes gets twisted into those stories, wrapped up in it. I got to tell you, and you know this, holding on to some of these things, maybe any of these things, it's literally poisoning your soul. I heard, a, I heard a great quote this week. I can't get it out of my head. Here's one for your fridge. Bitterness is the drink you drink hoping the other person is going to drop dead. And it's, it's so, and so what are we supposed to do? I mean, I know I follow Jesus. I know it's not good. But how am I supposed to get rid of it? Isn't it natural? I mean, what did Paul know? Because it happened to him. What did Paul know that we have to learn? Well, he continues. He says, guys, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. In contrast to bitterness and brawling, Paul suggests we extend kindness and compassion to those who have wronged us. And then, as one writer pointed out, with nothing but a comma to separate it out from the rest of the pack, there's this one powerful word, forgiving. Forgiving. The sentence structure here actually implies that forgiveness is, in fact, the means by which we come to an end. It is the means by which we're to do away with the bitterness, rage, and anger. Forgiveness is what enables us to be kind and compassionate to people who have given us neither kindness nor compassion. And so how do you do it? How do you overcome all of the toxicity? Forgiveness. And so if this is all Paul wrote, I have a feeling it would be nice I mean, it, it would be one of those things that, again, you know, we kind of put on the wall, put on the fridge. I don't think it would have all that much power, though, if I'm honest. I mean, really, who among us, especially if you've been around the church for any amount of time or have made a decision maybe to follow Jesus, who doesn't know that we should forgive? I mean, it's kind of like 101. That's what we're supposed to do. If Paul just left it there, it'd be a nice moral teaching. But I have to tell you, I think it would lack the power it needed to transform us. See, I think we'd read it, and we would know we should do it, but then we would go right back to the well-rehearsed stories of why we know we should, but I can't. The hurt is too deep. The pain is too much. The offense is too grievous. Let him make the first step. Let him come towards me. And this is so often how as Christians we live. We know we should forgive, we know it, but it winds, up, it winds up like a theological truth that's in our heads, we accede to it, but it's in no way a reality we experience. And so we continue day after day and year after year to drink the cup of bitterness that destroys our souls. This is why Paul did not leave it there, because he knows all that. And so he then drops in two ridiculously powerful words. The Q-tip words for the week. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. 
Here they are, just as. Two words, just as. It's the magic two words, just as, just as. Well, just as what? Just as we've been commanded? Well, no, I don't think that would work. Just as others have done to us? Well, probably not because we don't tend to see this a lot. So then just as what, Paul? Just as in Christ God forgave you, forgive just as in the same exact way that God forgave you. That is why those two words, just as, should be written on your hands, your hearts, and in your homes, just as. They are, in many ways, the keys to overcoming all the toxicity that gets jammed up in our hearts, that winds up spewing into our homes, our offices, our towns, our Facebook pages, and, and even sometimes into church. One writer put it this way, he said, we're to extend an attitude of forgiveness that mirrors the kind that God extended towards you in Christ. That little phrase, just as. He says it should be bolded, highlighted, italicized, and doubled in font size. It carries more significance than we'll ever understand. Just as. That's what gave Paul confidence to call people he barely knew to a standard of behavior that most would have said was unrealistic. But more importantly, just as is the key to allowing God to, to rid our hearts of the bitterness and the resentment that have to, the potential to reach their destructive tentacles in every important relationship we have. Some of you are wrestling through that in your homes right now, in your marriages, and in your offices, just as it redefines and upgrades the meaning of forgiveness. Now, I want you to stick with me here because this concept is a little complex, but you actually see it all over the New Testament. Not only do you see it, I guarantee you've prayed this concept many, many, many times, maybe from the time you were a little kid. You know what is the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and, and, go ahead, say it at home with me. Forgive us our debts, or depending on your background, you may have said trespasses. Forgive us our debts as what? Well, as we forgive our debtors. Jesus, as he so often does, flips the script on us. Paul tells us, forgive one another as we've been forgiven, but then Jesus tells us to ask God to forgive us just like we, in a sense, in proportion to our ability as we have forgiven others. Now, if, if you're familiar with kind of the Christian underlying tenets of grace and faith, you might be going, well, I don't understand, John. What does that mean? Does that mean my forgiveness from God, my salvation, my going to heaven, if you will, is contingent upon being able to forgive others? Because if that's the case, I could be in a little bit of trouble. How am I supposed to sleep at night? You're going to lay that on me, John? It's a Sunday morning. What if, I, what if I've screwed it up? And plus, I don't understand. I mean, I thought we were saved by grace through faith and not by any works. You are, but let me confuse you a little bit more. Jesus says, as recorded by the tax collector Matthew, 
Here's what Matthew heard him say. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If. If? What do you mean if, Jesus? If. Does that mean my forgiveness is contingent on my forgiveness? Maybe you know that when things like this got difficult, Jesus would often begin to teach them in parables to help his audience understand. (laughs) That's me and you. And so he taught one just on this very unsettling topic. Some of you know Peter one day came to him and asked him how often he needed to forgive someone who had sinned against him. And Jesus answers and then tells him this story. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was bought to him. And since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Well, at this, the servant falls on his knees before him, and he, he, he pleads, be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything, which of course he couldn't. But the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and just let him go. Jesus relates someone hurting you to them having incurred, in a sense, a debt to you. They've taken something. I don't know what it is. You do, but maybe it's money. Maybe it's a business deal gone bad. Maybe it was your dreams, your hopes. Maybe they've, they've, they've canceled out on a promise. Maybe they stole your rep- rep- reputation. Maybe they, they stole a promotion. You fill in the blank. That's why human anger, as Jesus' brother James said, doesn't lead to righteousness. Human anger leads us instead to wanting to get even. We settle scores. We balance the ledger. You'll get yours. I owe you. But in Jesus' parable, the master, he's going to settle the debt with the servant originally. He's going to sell his wife, his children, all his possessions. Something under ancient law he actually had every right to do. But the servant, on the other hand, he does the only thing he could. Pleads for mercy. And then he does something, the master, rather absurd. Well, first the servant promises to pay a debt he can't. Just so you know, 10,000 talents in one version was an enormous amount of money. Some have said 17 years worth of wages, more money than the servant could ever return. His debt was beyond his ability to repay, but fortunately for him, his master was a merciful man and took pity on the servant and just cancels the debt. The master chooses to forego payback Guys, that is the essence of what it means to forgive. It is a mental decision on your part to cancel a debt you are owed. And so with that in mind, Jesus continued. But when that servant went out, this is just, uh, when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins, like 10 bucks. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Well, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. 
And instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now, I want you to stick with me through this story. The servant was put in the same situation as his master. Someone owed him a debt. Someone, in a sense, had heard him, borrowed from him, sinned against him. And you would expect that that servant, who had just had a massive debt forgiven, of course, in light of what's been done to him, he would, of course, forgive this small debt. But he didn't. Jesus continues, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. Of course they were. And they went and told the master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in and said to him, you wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his, in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus, he steps out of the parable and hits those around him, the audience around him, and maybe you and I with this truth. It's the same truth we've just been looking at. He says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from where? Not with your lips, your heart. Those are tough words. But let me explain. Here's what we know. I want you to know that if you have come to understand that Jesus is who he said he is, he's the way, the truth, and the life, that nobody comes to the Father except through him. He is the only way. If you've repented of your sins, which means that I, you've changed your mind about, about things, you've changed the way you think, if you've changed the direction of your life, if you've handed your life over to Christ for his purposes, and then, according to the totality of Scripture, you are saved by grace. You are saved by that faith, not by your works but by Jesus' work of repaying the debt. This should start to sound familiar. By repaying the debt that you and I owed to God. Now, if you've taken those steps, if you're living that life, I want you to rest in the promise of God that you are adopted sons and daughters of the Most High and you have His life now and eternally. If you haven't taken those steps then I need to tell you, you still have a debt outstanding that is going to need to be paid. And so let me encourage you to pursue the truth of Jesus and his words, his life, most importantly, his resurrection. Make the decision which would wipe out all of the debt that you owe the master. But if that's true and it's the totality of scriptures, what does the parable mean? What did Jesus mean when Matthew recorded him? What did he mean in the Lord's Prayer? I'll tell you. And this is really super important. If you missed everything else I've heard, now come here. I know you can't come. Sit up in your chair. Sit up on your couch. Straighten yourself up. What it means is an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. An unforgiving heart, if you can't forgive, if you won't forgive then that is likely a reflection that you yourself have neither understood, received, 
or experienced forgiveness. You haven't understood yourself, your debt, or what you've been forgiven. Do you know what you've been forgiven? Have you experienced it? See, I don't know, maybe you've heard the gospel stories before. Maybe you, you prayed a prayer that someone told you to pray. Maybe you, you've memorized the Scripture and you, you give your 10% to the church every week and you've gone on missions trips. And maybe you've done all of those things. But if you have not experienced in your heart, at a heart level, if you have not felt the depth of your debt or the height of your forgiveness, then what happens is it usually manifests itself in a lack of ability to forgive others and in bitterness, in anger, in rage, and, as Paul would say, all kinds of malice. What's the cure? The cure is forgiveness. How do I forgive? Just as Christ forgave me. And so Q-tip two for the week, Q-tip one was just as. Commit those two words to memory every time you fear anger kind of starting in your, in your soul. Just start to go, you know, no, no, just as, just as, just as. I'm going to forgive just as. Q-tip two. You really need to make it a, a kind of a part of your regular life, to, to stop often, to reflect and remind yourself on a regular basis of what Christ has forgiven you of. And you know some of those things. You know all those times you said you would? Tomorrow, God, I promise, God, I'm going to make a deal, God. Remember all those times you said you would and you didn't? Remember all those times you said, I'm not going to do that anymore. I promise, God, that's the last time. Please forgive me. Remember all those times you said you wouldn't, and you did? All those times uh, that you knew what the right thing to do was, and, and you still chose to do the wrong thing? Yeah, I do that too, so I'm with you. But I need to be reminded all the times that, that you've chosen to ignore God, or, or you've conveniently forgotten God, or or you've tried to use God like a genie in a bottle to, to continue to make your life better but not give your life to Him? Here's something I heard this week that I think is, is true as I've reflected on it. It's really hard to forgive somebody that you feel morally superior to. Think about that, right? If you see something going down on TV or you've had someone do something to you, you look, you feel like, you know what? The reason I'm at is I'm above that. I would never do that. I'm better than that. Didn't their parents teach them better? Welcome to bitterness, anger, and rage. But here's what our faith tells us. Don't look at that. What you need to do is you need to move your gaze off of other people's stuff and look at the cross. That's where we see our sin, our failures, our debts, and we start to get a glimpse for a moment of what we've been forgiven of. Guys, this is why Jesus is always trying to get us to see our hearts. I mean, you might walk around saying, well, yeah, well, I've never killed anybody, and that's why Jesus says, well, see, really the issue is you've kind of, in some sense, you've kind of done the same thing if you hate your brother. Well, I've never cheated on my wife. Well, if you've kind of looked at, a, at someone with lust in your heart, Jesus is trying to get us to understand 
forgiveness. Our forgiveness. Do you want to know why? So that we might forgive. So that we might stop drinking from the same old cup of bitterness that is slowly eating away at our souls. So that we might open the door of the jail that the unforgiven debts that have placed us in. I'm going to make it as practical as I can for you. What should you do? Well, what are you angry about? Because all of us are to one extent or another. Here's what I would tell you to do. First, go back to last week and figure out why, but then get specific. Here's why I'm angry, because you're, you're never going to get rid of this unless you do this. Here's why I'm angry, and here's what I'm angry about. We've talked about this before, but if you want to experience the kind of freedom that Jesus would like for you to know, write down the debt that someone owes you. What have they taken from you? Specifically, write it down. Was it your promotion? Was it a dream? Was it a relationship? And then I want you over that debt, I want you to ask God, as you look at that debt, to bring to your mind any will. But you have to ask. Ask, and the Holy Spirit will, will bring to your mind all the things that God has forgiven you of. And as He does, I want you to start making a list. The stuff that we've done on the outside, the stuff He knows about on the inside, the stuff you've done over and over and over again, even though you promised Him you were going to stop and this would be the last time. And then, with the list in hand, look back at the debt that someone owes you. And cancel it. A forgiven heart becomes a forgiving heart. This week, Mendham Hills, my prayer for you is that you would put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. We're all members of one body. And in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs. And get rid of, take off all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as, just as, just as as in Christ God forgave you. Guys, this week, stop letting your debtors be your captors. Do you know that when you cancel their debts, it's you that gets set free? Look, the truth is, think about it, they couldn't pay you back anyway. The more the hurt, the deeper the pain, the less chance they could ever give you what it is you want. And so now, go. Be free, and I'll see you right back here next Sunday.